the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Genesis 38 verses 24 to 30. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zira. Matthew 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, welcome. Welcome to the weekly services here at Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad to be with you as we begin our Advent series Whether you're here in the West service with me, watching across the hall in our East service, or watching online, thanks for being with us. Uh, Before I begin, let me offer a kind of seasonal disclaimer. Uh, I have been struggling all week with my voice and with a cough. I am COVID safe, or I wouldn't be here, okay? Uh, But I have learned this week that nothing makes you more unpopular right now than to have a cough. So I have a cough drop in my mouth right now. I have some uh, hot lemon water, delicious, here in the cup. Uh, And I'm going to get through this, and we're going to do it together. So I appreciate your patience with me. Uh, And I might try to hang out a little less than normal in the atrium following the service so as not to make you uncomfortable. Uh, But I'm glad to be here with you as we start our Advent series. You know, Advent is the church term we use to describe this season, Uh, It is a term that carries with it this idea of longing, of hoping, of expecting. That this is a season in which we look forward to the coming of the Messiah. And this year, we're going to be taking a little bit of a unique spin on Advent as we look at the genealogy of Jesus laid out for us in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus' family tree, his family history. We're not going to look at the whole genealogy. That would take uh, some time. But there is something really unique about the genealogy of Jesus laid out for us in the Gospel of Matthew, and that is that it includes women. Now, I don't want to give you too much of a biology lesson here, but everyone's family tree includes women. But at this time in uh, human history, the time of Jesus' coming, you did not include women in the historical account of where people came from. It was a patriarchal culture, and so you would tell the story going from one man 
to the next. Women were there, but you just didn't talk about them. So the fact that Matthew includes women in the genealogy of Jesus would have been somewhat eye-opening, somewhat scandalous. And I, I think at the bare minimum, it is there to show us women that you have value. That God, even in the midst of a patriarchal culture, has never agreed that you didn't have value. He has never agreed that you were worth overlooking. That the women of the Bible, the women of church history, the women of this church, matter a great deal to God and to his kingdom. But Matthew doesn't just go male, female, male, female. He, he picks out four particular women, of course, in addition to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so what we want to do this December is spend time saying, why does Matthew think it's so important that we understand the role these four women played in the coming of Jesus? What is it in particular that these four women tell us about this Advent season, about the Messiah who's come, Jesus. So each week we're going to be looking at a particular woman and what she brings to the story of Jesus. So this week we're going to be looking at the story of Tamar. You'll find her story in the Bible in Genesis chapter 38. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to take it out and open it to Genesis 38. Take out your phone, scroll to Genesis 38. Uh, or if you're watching online, open that web browser and just Google Genesis 38. Now, as you are turning there, let me offer two more important caveats than me having a cough drop in. The first is that this story contains mature themes. If it were a television series, you would not watch it on cable. Okay, it would be on HBO Max. It is a, it is a graphic story. And I want, I want you to know that I know that there are children in the room and I would never want to force you to have some uncomfortable conversations with your children that you're not ready to have. So I'm going to try to talk about these things in a vague enough way so as not to cause problems for you. I don't want to sanitize the story, but I also uh, don't want to be needlessly salacious. So if you're a parent and you're scrolling Genesis 38, don't worry. My kids are here too in this service. Uh, We're going to get through this together, okay? But the second thing is, if you're here and you are a victim of assault, I want you to know that this story could be triggering for you. And I've thought this week about that a great deal. I've prayed about it a great deal. I want to be incredibly sensitive to you. Again, my goal is not to bring back uh, up bad memories. It is not certainly to push any buttons for you, to cause you any distress. And I know in the church there is a a temptation sometimes to to say we shouldn't be talking about these things because uh, they're too painful and they're too ugly and they're too dark. But then I wonder, when do you get to find yourself in the story of the Bible? I just think that's so important. I think that this story is in here because God wants you to know that there's a place for people with your kind of story in the story that he's writing. And I want to be incredibly sensitive to you, but one of the best ways to be sensitive to you is to show you stories like yours in the Bible. So if you'll allow me, I promise to be as sensitive and as careful as I can be, but I really believe you need to see yourself here in the story of the Bible. So I hope you'll be open to that. And if you're thinking, what in the world happens in Genesis 38? 
Uh, you're going to want to be reading it as I talk, okay? Because I'm not going to go into it in great detail. So if you're not familiar, I want you to go ahead and read it, and then I will just make a passing reference to some of the events that happened there. But I do have an outline I want to hold out to you and help us as we guide uh, our way through uh, Genesis 38. Three things, and, I, and they go just like this. I want to talk about Advent and our world. Advent and our world. Advent in our stories, and Advent in our future. Okay, Advent in our world, Advent in our stories, and Advent in our future. Well, let's start with number one, Advent and our world. On the surface, this is not a very Christmassy story. Tamar marries into the family of Judah, the family of God. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had a son named Judah. And Judah has a son, and his son marries a woman named Tamar. Now, we don't know much about Judah's oldest son, except for that Genesis 38 tells us he was so evil and so wicked that God killed him, which is a pretty incredible sentence. I mean, that's it. That's all it says. He was very wicked, and so God killed him. And I think I know a lot of really evil people and they're still breathing. So this guy must have really been something. And if he was that bad, that God himself reached a point of being fed up with him and took his life, can you imagine what it was like to be married to him? And then Tamar is now widowed to a man who has not only been evil and made her life awful, but is now dead. She's a woman without a husband at a time in which in human history, that was not a very good place to be. The custom dictated at this time that what would happen is when the oldest son died, uh, the next son in line would marry his wife. That way she would be taken care of and he could provide her children. And the next son that Judah has is a real winner named Onan. And Onan does not want the responsibility of being a father. You might say Onan could be a man living in 2021, honestly. He doesn't want the responsibility of being a father, but he does want the fun of having a wife. And so he makes sure that when he has a relationship with Tamar, she does not get pregnant. You can read that. It's awful. It's heinous. It's dark. It's assault. And the Lord gets so mad at Onan, he dies. So now you're Tamar and you've been married twice. Now both marriages, you've probably prayed for these guys to die. That's how awful they've been. Uh, but they are dead and now you're alone. And Judah, the father-in-law, has another son. But as you might guess at this point, uh, he's a little worried about having his son marry Tamar. And so he tells Tamar, hey, my son's not old enough yet to marry. Why don't you go back to your family and we'll call you when he gets old enough. That's the story of Tamar. Now there's more to come and it takes some twists and turns, but that's the beginning of the story. And I know what you're thinking, what does this have to do with Christmas? And that's just it. The answer is everything. Now, now you notice that I use in this sermon, the word Advent, not Christmas. Now, there's nothing wrong with Christmas, and there's nothing wrong with Christmas traditions and Christmas trees and family gatherings and Christmas music. I like Christmas music. In fact, I like the classics, okay? If Andy Williams or Bing Crosby, Nat King Cole, they didn't sing it, it doesn't count as Christmas music to me, okay? When I come in the house and we're listening to Mariah Carey, I'm switching over to the classics, 
And one of my favorites is, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Now, I'm not going to sing it to you because even before I lost my voice, that would have been rough. And it's definitely going to be rough now. But you know that song and you know the gist of the song. Christmas is, is this wonderful time where there's toys in every store and we're all the best versions of ourselves and we even like snow. Snow and the cold is exciting to us. Christmas is this wonderful, warm, welcoming, sanitized, family-friendly version of our world. And that's great. But the problem with that is, is if that's not how your life feels right now, Christmas feels very distant to you. If your world is not warm, welcoming, friendly, if being around family is not an encouraging or exciting experience for you, instead it's full of pain and full of drama, if, if thinking about the people you grew up with is painful because you have stories like Tamar, then Christmas can feel distant. It can feel saccharine. It can feel like something for other people who are normal and have normal lives. But Advent, the coming of Jesus, I want you to see, is about the Son of God coming to the real world. The reason why Tamar's inclusion in the genealogy of Jesus is so vital for us is because I want you to see that Jesus was born into this real world with real people and real brokenness in his own family. Jesus, if he could have gathered all of his family up for a big meal, would have had some drama. He would have had some family members who weren't speaking to each other. He would have had family members who had assaulted other family members. He would have had family members whose victimhood had shaped and defined everything about them. That's because while Andy Williams makes Christmas sound so wonderful, Jesus's coming happened in our real world. I mean, let's be honest, if you read Matthew chapter 1 and you say, Abraham, no one here is like Abraham. And Isaac, no. Jacob, maybe a little more so, but no. Tamar is the first name that I can look at and say, now there's somebody who understands the world I live in. Listen, the Bible is not about a fictional overly sentimentalized, romantic version of the world. The Bible is about the real God getting involved in the real world with real people in real problems and real brokenness. And if you're here and it feels as though you are miles away from Christmas, you might be very close to Advent. Do you understand what I mean? Please don't think I'm trying to drive a wedge between those terms and ruin your holidays. I'm not. But if it feels as though you're very far from Christmas, perhaps maybe you're very close to longing, expecting, desiring God to do something in this world. That's what Tamar would have wanted. That's what her story represents. That's why she's included. Jesus's family was broken, just like yours. Jesus' world was dark, just like yours. Jesus' relationships around him were broken, just like yours. The Bible is about the real God.
coming to the real world. That's my first point. Here's my second one. Advent and our stories. You know, when I read Genesis 38, I can't help but wonder, where does Tamar think that God is? I mean, she's not just marrying, she's marrying into the family of God. I mean, can you imagine as she's getting to know this family and she's hearing about Father Abraham and how old he was and he and his wife Sarah were promised by God to have a child. Even though they were old and they had that child, the son of laughter, Isaac, and then Isaac had Jacob and Jacob went nuts and had a bunch of boys and and Judah is the one that God has promised to carry on the line through and this is Her family, this is the family of God. She's married into the family of God. And when the first husband is awful and dies, I wonder where she thinks that God is. I I would imagine if a man is so bad that God himself loses patience with him, that Tamar probably prayed for her husband to die a few times. But I want you to notice that when Genesis 38 tells us that the man was so evil, God took his life, we know that as readers. Tamar doesn't know that. She just knows her husband died. She just knows his brother took advantage of her and died. She just knows that Judah, her father-in-law, the promised family of God, has ostracized her and, and, and marginalized her and forgotten her. I wonder where Tamar feels like God is. This God with a family, this God with a promise, this God with this great kingdom he's supposedly building. And you see, the reason why this story is so vital to us is who here hasn't wondered that? Where are you, God? What are you doing? Don't you see? Don't you care? Listen, if you can resonate with Tamar's story at all, don't you know that prayer? Don't you know that questioning God? Where are, don't you see? Don't you care? Perhaps even going to a family gathering last week or in the weeks to come leads you looking across the table at a family member and saying, God, don't you care? Don't you see? Don't you remember? Won't you do something? That's Tamar. That's Tamar. And we as readers have an advantage that she didn't have. And yet I want you to see that God is all over Genesis 38. It's God who rescues Tamar twice from awful marriages. When the boys are born, Perez and and his brother, it is God who sovereignly chooses the one to be born first so that he could carry on. God is all over Genesis 38, but she can't see it. In fact, we don't get a real perspective on Tamar's life until Matthew chapter 1, when we see that when Tamar saw herself as a marginalized, forgotten victim, oppressed by the men of God, God saw her as a grandmother to the Messiah. See, in Matthew chapter 1, God, through Jesus, reclaims the story of Tamar. He changes her story with the inclusion of Jesus. He changes the narrative around her. If you're reading the Bible from beginning to end, you have to understand that the story of Tamar adds no value to the story of the Old Testament. 
We could take out the story of Tamar and the Bible would keep going. It's not the Jenga block that makes the tower crumble. It is not a vital story. Tamar will not really show up again from Genesis 38 all the way to Matthew chapter one. She is not a significant figure except for this. She matters to God. In fact, if you're reading the Bible from beginning to end, you read about her in Genesis 38, you've forgotten about her by the time you get to Matthew 1. But God hasn't. You see, all those nights and all those mornings and all those moments that Tamar was wondering, God, do you see? God, do you care? God, do you know? The coming of Jesus is God's definitive answer. Yes, I see. Yes, I care. Yes, I know. And I am going to make sure you are not forgotten you are not left out and you are not remembered for what he or he or he did to you. You are remembered for what I have said about you. You are a grandmother to the Messiah, the Son of God. You see, the coming of Jesus is an invitation to each one of us to reframe our story, to reclaim our story. That the coming of Jesus is evidence that God is not absent. He's not, paying, he's not not paying attention. He's not disregarding us. He's not unaware of what's happening to us. The coming of Jesus, the Son of God, into our world is a sign of a God rolling up his sleeves and getting involved and saying, not only am I getting involved in this world, but in your story. God's desire in the coming of Jesus is to take you from a person whose life has been defined by what others have done to you to a person whose life is defined by your relationship to the Son of God. Tamar is not fundamentally a victim, although she is one. She's not fundamentally a woman, although she is one. She's not fundamentally a widow, although she is one. She is fundamentally a part of the family of God because of Jesus. It's in the coming of Jesus for all of you who are hurting and all of you who are suffering, for all of you who don't, are not interested in overly sentimental, emotional holiday celebrations, for those of you longing for something more, something that's redefining, something that's freeing, something that's shaping. Listen, Tamar is not who she is in Genesis 38. She is who she is in Matthew 1 because of Jesus and the same can be true for you. Listen, it's a long time, a lot of space between Genesis 38 and Matthew 1. A lot of space, a lot of time, a lot of wondering. But God never stops working to this end. Listen, what it most fundamentally means to become a Christian is to leave one story to enter into another one. To leave one story where all we are is the sum total of what we've done and what's been done to us. To enter into one, into all that we are, is what Jesus has done and who he's been for us. That's what happens to Tamar. The Bible doesn't remember her as a throwaway or as a victim. It remembers her as a great great, great, great grandmother of Jesus. God in Jesus is changing stories.
That leads me to my third point, which is to say, not only what Advent and the relationship between Advent and our world or Advent and our stories, but Advent and our future. When I read Genesis 38, Tamar is, is an amazing woman. She refuses to simply accept what is done to her. You know, if you are a victim of someone else's violence, you often feel stuck between, on the one hand, not doing anything and kind of silently suffering. And by the way, if that's you, if you're here and someone is hurting you, if you're in danger, we, we want to help you. All you got to do is go to the Next Steps area, come see me afterwards. You can find help right here, right now, today. But you're often stuck between do I suffer silently or do I fight back? And if I fight back, will that just make things worse? Tamar is there. She's sent away. She's twice widowed, no children, no family, ostracized, realizing every day that her father-in-law has no desire to marry her to the third son. She's realizing that, that he's lied to her. And she finds out that uh, in her hometown, her home area, that her father-in-law is in town. And, and it tells us something about her, that, or about her father-in-law, that she knows where he will be. And so to have an encounter with her father-in-law, she dresses like a prostitute and goes where prostitutes hang out, which I guess tells us a little bit about Judah and the kind of man uh, that he was. And she ends up having a relationship with Judah. And because she's very smart, she gets some of his things and holds on to them so that if she ever needs to, she'll be able to prove that it was him who got her pregnant. And in fact, when Judah goes back home, and, and this is just awful, finds out that Tamar is pregnant, someone tells him, your daughter-in-law's pregnant, she's been unfaithful, he says, bring her out and let's burn her alive. Which pretty much just sums up patriarchy, if you think about it. She's been unfaithful, let's burn her alive. So she says, oh, okay, that's cool, you know, uh, if we're going to do that, maybe we want to grab the guy who, who got me pregnant, here's his stuff. And Judah goes, well... And they throw a baby shower instead. <laughs> it's a man's world. Tamar is put in an unenviable position of fighting for herself. Unfortunately, she does what many of us do, which is when you fight for yourself, you sometimes also end up making it worse. Broken people fighting other broken people. This family just gets more broken and more dysfunctional and more difficult. You can't blame her for fighting, but you can see that the answers aren't in her fighting. You know, so I think of Matthew chapter 1 when Matthew lays out the genealogy of Jesus, and at the very end, when he gets to Jesus, he says, you shall name him Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Now, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you know that the most fundamental way to understand that verse is that Jesus will live in the place of sinners. Jesus will always obey God where you and I have disobeyed. 
And he'll go to the cross and take the place of sinners so that on the cross, God is pouring out his judgment onto Jesus and Jesus is willingly taking that judgment on my behalf and on yours and and coming up under the judgment of God and dying for our sin. And then three days later, raising from the dead and saying, everyone who grabs hold of me in faith will see that I have lived for them and I have died for them and I have risen from the dead. And when they stand before God in judgment, I will speak on their behalf. That is most fundamentally what it means for Jesus to save his people from their sins. But for people like Tamar, it also means a little bit more. You see, Jesus, we're also told, is the king of God's kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 9, we're told that when God establishes the new kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth, it will be Jesus upon who the government will be on his shoulders. The book of Revelation in Revelation 19 says that when Jesus returns, he'll return on a pale horse and he will bring the judgment of God with him against all those who have done evil, against all those who have broken this world. Listen to me. Jesus' coming isn't just God's way of saying to Tamar, I see you, I know, I care. It's also Jesus' way of saying to those who have hurt Tamar, I see you, I know, and I care. Jesus is not just the baby who comes Cute little baby in a manger, come to rescue us. Jesus is the king of God who will one day return, bringing the judgment of God and the fury of God and the indignation of God because Tamar is the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus and nobody gets to treat her like that. Listen, if you're here and your life is marked by suffering, by victimhood, if you are the the victim of any kind of violence, of any kind of injustice, the coming of Jesus is not just about him living in your place and dying in your place and raising from the dead. It's about a king who will right all wrongs. What has been done to you matters to God. He has never forgotten. He will never let it go. In fact, he has sent a king who will bring his judgment. He hasn't just come to save you from your own sins, but from the sins of those who have hurt you. You see, That's really hard for Andy Williams to sing about. But tell me that doesn't hit a little closer to home. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. If you're here and you have hurt, God's judgment for you is certain. You must repent and grab hold of the forgiveness available to you in Christ so that he would suffer righteously for what you've done. Because there is a king coming who is not like Judah, and he's not like Tamar's husbands. He's not a fraud. He's not a hypocrite. He's not a phony, and you won't fool him. 
And the person you've hurt matters too much for him to overlook it. Let me pray for us. Father God, what a great God you are. That Tamar is included in the genealogy of Jesus. I pray for all the Tamars in the room here today, men and women, hurt by others, victimized by others, feeling forgotten, feeling marginalized. Holy Spirit, would you do what this sermon cannot? Would you convince them that they have never been forgotten? The coming of Jesus is proof of that. The return of the King Jesus will solidify that. Might they find hope in that. And for all of us here, leaving, looking behind us even now and seeing a trail of people we've hurt, thank you for the forgiveness that's available in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.